Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, January the 27th, uh, 2024. Uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the interview uh, delivered by Republic of South Africa Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Dr. Nalidi Pandor, on the necessity for Palestinian solidarity within the global south. The resistance continues in Gaza against the occupation by the Israeli Defense Forces. Some 60 uh, Israeli Defense Forces soldiers have been killed uh, reportedly uh, over the last several days. And the Supreme Court in Kenya has halted uh, the deployment of police uh, in the Caribbean nation of Haiti. In the second hour, we look more in detail at the ongoing fight in Gaza. Uh, finally, we review the case filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights against the administration of the United States President Joe Biden over support uh, for uh, the genocide in Gaza. Uh, these and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra. Uh, this is a live broadcast over Radio Cairo uh, from 1963. Uh, let's listen in. تفتح الآن عن كوكب الشرق السيدة أم كلثوم وعن فرقتها الموسيقية وجمهورنا جمهور أم كلثوم وعشاق فنها يصفقون لها يصفقون للفن الشرقي الأصيل الذي تمثله أم كلثوم والذي تعبر عنه بنبرات صوتها بصوتها الشجي بالموسيقى الشرقية بشعر الشباب بأم كلثوم بعد أن عزف سلام الأمير حية كوكب الشرق السيدة أم كلثوم جمهورها وعشاق فنها ولا تزال الستارة مفتوحة ونحن في انتظار سماع أولى أغنياتها حيرت قلبي
وصمتك بيني
Welcome back. And that was uh, the Um Kaltum Orchestra uh, broadcasting live over Radio Cairo, a concert uh, recorded in 1963. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 27th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. In an exclusive uh, statement to Al Mahadeen uh, Television Network, the South African Minister of Foreign Affairs calls on the countries of Africa, the Middle East, and the Global South to stand in solidarity with Palestine. In an exclusive interview uh, with Al Mahadeen, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of South Africa, Nalidi Pandora, affirmed that the details of the International Court of Justice decision and temporary measures which Israel have mandated uh, have been mandated to comply uh, with an indicative uh, of the seriousness with which the International Court of Justice is dealing with the lawsuit filed uh, by her country. She added that with this decision, the court has initiated the first part, which is an indication of the transition to the practical part as the court examines the evidence brought forth uh, by South Africa. Pandora pointed out that this is the first time a lawsuit of this kind has been filed against Israel, and a decision was issued quickly regarding the temporary measures describing the decision as historic. Uh, Through Al Mahadeen, the minister appealed to African and Middle Eastern countries and all the countries of the global south to stand in solidarity with Palestine to follow up uh, with the court case. Quote, we want civil society and governments across Africa, the Middle East, and the rest of the southern countries in particular to ensure that we all stand together with the people of Palestine and ensure uh, the collective pursuit of this case, unquote. Earlier today, the Ugandan government denounced Judge Julia Sebutende uh, following her vote against all provisional measures ruled by the International Court of Justice against Israel regarding the genocide in Gaza. Uganda's uh, president, uh, Uganda's permanent representative to the United Nations, Adonia uh, Ayubari, uh, took to X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, to blast Sabutende, saying, quote, Justice Sabutende's ruling at the uh, International Court of Justice does not represent the government of Uganda's position on the situation in Palestine. Uganda's support for the plight of the Palestinian people has been expressed through our voting pattern at the United Nations, unquote. And if you want to read uh, this article uh, in its entirety, just go to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in his desperate search for any victory in Gaza, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has moved his country's military operations further south. It is unclear what type of victory Israel is hoping to achieve in Yunis and in central Gaza, but judging from the last 113 days, Israel is unlikely to find its target, and the Palestinian resistance will continue to fight back with ferocity. Below are the latest statements uh, by the two main resistance forces in Gaza and the Lebanese resistance movement Hezbollah. And you can read these statements by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. The fighters confirmed uh, that they eliminated 53 Zionist soldiers at point-blank range 
sniped nine soldiers and caused dozens of soldiers to fall between dead and wounded in 57 different military missions. That's according uh, to Abu Obeda, uh, the military spokesperson uh, for the Al-Qasim Brigades, the military wing of the Hamas uh, resistance movement. Abu Obeda, the spokesman for Al-Qasim Brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas, announced yesterday uh, that over 60 Israeli soldiers have been killed in operations carried out against the occupation forces in Gaza over the last week. In a statement published on the official account of the Al-Qasim Brigades on its Telegram channel, Abu Abeda said that the Al-Qasim fighters, quote, were able to completely or partially destroy 68 military vehicles, unquote. Moreover, firm that they eliminated 53 Zionist soldiers at point-blank range, sniped nine soldiers, and caused dozens of soldiers to fall between dead and wounded in 57 different military missions. And finally, uh, in regard uh, to the situation uh, in Kenya vis-a-vis its requested deployment uh, of police forces to the Caribbean island nation of Haiti, the Kenyan government has been dealt a blow after the high court halted a UN-backed plan to deploy 1,000 police officers to Haiti to fight gangs and restore peace. In the ruling, uh, Justice Enoch Chacha Mweta said the Constitution only allows members of the Kenyan Defense Forces, the Kenyan Army, Kenyan Air Force, and Kenyan Navy to be deployed to keep the peace outside of Kenya. Justice Mweta uh, said Article 240 of the 2010 Constitution allows the National Security Council to deploy defense forces when requested by the United Nations Security Council. But he said the National Police Services does not fall under the category of defense forces and, quote, therefore cannot be deployed to Haiti, unquote. In his ruling, Justice Mbwita said, quote, a declaration is hereby issued that the National Security Council has no mandate to deploy police officers outside of Kenya under Article 248 of uh, the Constitution of Kenya or any other law. Uh, with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, January 27th, 2024, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
voice of the legendary Irma Thomas uh, of New Orleans, uh, the soul and rhythm and blues empress uh, of uh, New Orleans. Uh, That track was entitled, uh, If Anyone Knows What Love Is, and we do know what love is here at the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 27th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Now we'd like to move into an analysis from Electronic Intifada on the recent developments uh, among the resistance forces in Gaza, uh, resisting the Israeli Defense Forces uh, onslaught that has been going on now for uh, three and a half months. Uh, Let's listen in. So let's let's switch to uh, number 12 here tomorrow. We're going to go show here. This is a a Saraya Al-Quds. Uh, Islamic Jihad's armed wing. We're looking at a photo, uh, at a video footage of them seeing Israeli soldiers, uh, dismounted Israeli soldiers in a building, and now we're seeing them, their fighters, knocking a loophole, a sniper loophole, 
out of the the wall of this destroyed house um, in contrast to the Israelis who stand in the windows and put curtains up when they're in there we're seeing a fighter a sniper a clearly skilled sniper uh, set back from the wall which is just basic uh, military uh, procedure um, not visible and dropping Israeli soldiers who are outside of a building with sniper fire which is also uh, a key operational um, tactic that we will see in the buffer zone um, because there is no possibility of creating a defensive zone where Israeli soldiers are when Palestinians have the capabilities that they have now, which they didn't have 20 years ago. And when they were expelled to Marja Zahur in 1994, they didn't have uh, these uh, resources that they have built with their own hands in the Gaza Strip for themselves. So this is a sniper attack dropping a soldier. Let's go to the next one tomorrow because there's another one that we see. Um, again, uh, this is a Saraya Al-Quds unit using a 50 cal sniper rifle. We're seeing footage right now of them inside a destroyed building that has no hole in the wall. And we're seeing right now uh, one of their fighters um, poking a hole in the wall using a hammer very carefully to make the hole as small as possible. Um, and then the fighters um, looks looks a little bit like the same sniper. These are both uh, Gaza City shots um, that are taking place. Again, dismounted soldiers moving what they believe is a safe area uh, and a fighter in a hoodie and a, and a toque uh, popping a loophole out and, and targeting uh, these Israeli soldiers, which is something that will happen constantly uh, in that. I just wanted to throw in a couple of Sarai al-Quds there. Um, again, we, we're showing, uh, actually, that this one's from Barej, actually. This is the Central Camps, again. So shout out to the Central Camps resistance that has been fierce uh, uh, for, since this third phase uh, when Israel has moved into the center and the south. Um, the resistance by these groups have been, uh, by, by all resistance factions, we, we tend to show these videos by Qassam and Sarai al-Quds, um, in part because they have the, um, um, they have the film crew, they have the uh, expertise, uh, they have the information operations embedded into their units, but all, there's 10 armed groups in the Gaza Strip that are carrying out operations uh, uh, daily. So Sarai al-Quds is the Islamic yeah. Jihad, the armed wing of Islamic Jihad, and the Qassam Brigades are the uh, armed wing of the uh, Hamas movement. I, I, something that always strikes me, John, this is a, may sound a little bit weird, but sometimes when I'm driving and I see all the raccoons and sometimes deer killed on the roads and it makes me very, very sad. And I say, well, you know, animals have such incredible ways of communication and instinct but they don't have language the same way we do. Cause I just wish like the deer could tell the other deer, stay away from the roads. Or, you know, if you see headlights, don't cross the road. They don't have that ability to do that. So they can never, I don't know, learn over time. Uh, but like, presumably Israeli soldiers do have that ability and so my no my question is like aren't they telling each other stay away from the windows they don't walk it. out i mean yeah. like <laughs> they love windows are they like raccoons i mean what what is going on i mean raccoons are actually lovable creatures i know that's a touchy topic in toronto but um 
I'm pro raccoon though. Yeah, raccoon. I know. But like I mean, animal grip. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm being a little lighthearted about it, but the serious question is, is there no, you know, we've, you've been telling us, you've been showing us how Hamas learns from its experience, how Hezbollah learns from its experience, even within the context of this battle. So, yes, they're learning over decades, but they're also learning over days and weeks in the context of this genocidal war. Why aren't the Israelis learning? I don't have an answer to that. I think we, we'll, we'll have to ask them after. I, I, I mean, there, there was footage shown the other day of a, of a Sarayal Quds force coming into the house that the Israelis are in and right. fighting inside the house. We have showed that video. I don't think YouTube would leave that uh, video up, but they're fighting inside the house. And one of the things that you see from the, from the Israeli soldier on his helmet cam is that he goes right to the window. He's like, it's almost like he's looking for an extra yeah. window to go to. It's not clear why, why they're not learning these lessons. Um, uh, maybe they are learning the lessons and we're just seeing the ones who aren't. Um, but no, it's not clear. What we're seeing is a, is a fighting force that is not able to carry out um, the orders of, of their generals that are saying that they're going to fight in Gaza for a year. Um, not, nothing shows that the Israelis are, are prepared for that in, as a, on a societal level or on a military level um, to carry out uh, what, what they claim uh, that they're going to do, which is why I think we're starting to see like this week we saw Israeli and American intelligence reports leaked kind of to the Washington Post and to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal about the number of, of Qassam fighters uh, that the Israelis have killed um, looking for an exit. And they, they use this term combat ineffective that we talked about. Uh, where 30, if 30 percent of your force has been killed or wounded um, and can't come back to fight, that that unit is considered combat ineffective, which is obviously uh, not true for a Palestinian guerrilla force that's able to re uh, re appoint leaders uh, and to move fighters in a fighting force that um, that is more than 40,000. And the Israelis have, have kind of ratcheted strangely in an, in an effort to exit this war, ratcheted down the number of fighters that they believe that the Qassam Brigades have um, down to 25,000 so that they can get these numbers to, to line up. Because in the Western media, these counting numbers are something that they rely on. Body count. Uh, I mean, talk, John, talk about count. the history of body counts in the context of the Vietnam War and what that stood for, how, how that symbolized the American failure. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the Americans used to shoot the, 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 the wildlife and count the wildlife uh, as their numbers uh, in that attack while they were getting smoked by the uh, Vietnamese resistance. Um, and so these numbers like Israel trying to say that they've killed 9,000 Qassam fighters, it's just it's there's no evidence whatsoever of that. If that number is true, there's no men in all of Gaza who are not in the Qassam brigades because that's the number of men that have been killed. But just to say, like, I follow the Israeli uh, military, uh, you know, uh, very closely throughout this and I watch every single one of their videos and if if I told you that there wasn't even 50 corpses in their videos I don't want to put a number out but uh, the number is in the dozens uh, and we don't even know that they're fighters that they put out in their videos their videos are essentially videos of, of snuff films from the air 
um, where they're saying that that person uh, is a fighter. And even still, even if you took all of their videos and all of the people that they kill in all of their videos, there's nothing like thousands. It's just, it's, it's lies. And partially the military censor allows for these lies, but I mean, partially the thing that you described in your report, Ali, is it's all part of that. The, the, the media is intertwined with these fighting forces. Um, and it's like they can't, you know, she, Elizabeth Dwoskin has hundreds of thousands of words of electronic intifada, including tens of thousands from the Gaza Strip itself, if she wanted to report on what was going on. Um, but there's no, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any interest in that. There's nothing like, um, the, Isra the New York Times appears to be the same as the Israeli censor. If you type Hannibal into the New York Times search engine, you're not going to get anything about, uh, you know, the, the dozens of stories that uh, that have appeared in the Israeli press. It's almost the Israelis uh, with their censor are almost more uh, telling us more than the uh, than the Western media. So let's just let's just look at the last few of these videos here. Um, this number 14 tomorrow. This is. Um, uh, again, troops uh, walking around outside a building that they presumably feel they have control of. Um, and then we see fighters, Qassam uh, uh, fighters, um, the armed wing of Hamas um, uh, fighters uh, using a thermobaric warhead built in the Gaza Strip uh, on lathes uh, underground um, as all of these weapons that we're seeing uh, for this Throughout this war, the weapons that we're seeing are built by Palestinians. And part of the reason why they're able to still fight four months on um, is because the preparation that their own arms industry created. And the Israelis talk about that, too, saying, well, we didn't expect it to be as vital that their arms industry wasn't this vital. Um, they didn't expect that the, that there was 50 percent more tunnels than the largest tunnel estimate they say like Kogat said that the 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 tunnels are an astonishing feat um you know these are Palestinians defending themselves against genocide with their own hands with things built in their own communities um and, and fighting for communities that are now uh in Jabalia in this case although there's still as we know a lot of people in the north um the vast vast majority of people have been driven from their homes and are living in very dangerous circumstances in the south in places where Israel told them to go and they're now under attack um which is also something you can read about on the electronic intifada but uh it's not clear that you're going to read about that in the Washington Post um let, let's just roll through the last um uh, let's do 16 tomorrow because this is a, a video by the Kassam Brigades um, from Gaza City. And we can see, again, soldiers in a window. Um, but in this video that we're going to watch, we're going to see we're seeing Palestinians who are in the building literally across the street, uh, literally the next building over um, targeting with Palestinian made warheads that are various. Uh, warheads here they're targeting uh, an armored vehicle um, using a different warhead than they target this uh, the soldiers on foot um, here they are using an rpg against a bulldozer um, here's dismounted soldiers uh, walking and this is a fragmentation warhead that's used um, that's used against uh, personnel. So we're seeing the fighters make choices. Uh, there's no, nothing indicating shortages. 
Um, there's nothing indicating uh, any kind of degrading of these resistance operations. If anything, the fighters now know better what weapons to use in what circumstance and what's more effective. There's another soldier in a window that we're watching. And we're also watching in Gaza City uh, here a soldier be hit on the waterfront, which Israel said that it took control of in November. Um, and now we're seeing soldiers in a window uh, being hit in along the waterfront. Um, and so th these videos all show that the buffer zone, it's not a thing. The Israelis aren't going to create a, a, a buffer zone where their soldiers are somehow not going to be attacked. Um, the only way out of this situation for Israel is to negotiate a prisoner exchange um, and to negotiate with, with Hezbollah in the north to get uh, some kind of agreement for liberated territory, the Sheba farms, um, to get that territory back. Um, and to, to have some kind of a diplomatic um, exit to this, which I think we're starting to see from the Americans and the French, um, that the Israelis need, which they needed in 2006 as well. We remember in 2006, they didn't want a ceasefire in 2006. Um, and then they carried out the ground operation, got smoked, and then wanted a ceasefire. And it's um, important so we'll to note that. now, John, uh, on this, this is very important because this also tells us something about you know, we could look at it from the perspective of the videos which shows what's happening on the battlefield, but the diplomatic uh, developments also tell us what's happening on the battlefield. And what I mean by that is that Israel is desperate for a ceasefire, but without calling it a ceasefire, because they have painted themselves into this corner where they're saying they, they have all these big goals, we're going to destroy Hamas, obliterate Hamas, Gaza is going to be changed for generations. We're going to free the hostages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they know because they said it in the beginning, stupidly. They said it, and Blinken said it, that a ceasefire means Hamas won. So now they can't agree to a ceasefire that they desperately want because they, by their own definition, that's defeat for them. Their publicly stated definition, that's defeat for them. So what are they doing now? They keep sending these proposals through the mediators, uh, whether it's Qatar or Egypt. And the latest one is, oh, we'll give you a two-month ceasefire in exchange for freeing the uh, prisoners of war. And we'll allow the senior leaders of Hamas to leave the Gaza Strip and, you know, all sorts of other things. No release um, of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails, though. That was also part of their... Well, you know, the, the point is, right. yeah, I mean, it's all these different things. Yeah. And Hamas is saying, no, we will not accept that. Not for a month, not for two months, not for six months. It has to be a permanent ceasefire. Yeah. That's our condition. So the point I'm making is they feel that they can hold that line. So their assessment of what's happening on the battlefield, clearly their assessment of what uh, resources they have is that they can hold that line. They stated that very clearly a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 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 Abu Ubaidah, the spokesperson for the, for the military wing of, Has of, of Hamas, the Al-Qassam Brigades, Abu Ubaidah as he's known, that's the only way we know him for, for you know, he's the man who appears with his face covered in the kafiya, and he's sort of this legendary figure. He made that very clear. 
we will not accept anything less than a permanent ceasefire. Osama Hamdan, another uh, uh, senior Hamas leader in uh, Beirut, who gives these uh, daily press conferences, has been crystal clear about that. So the Israelis are the ones who constantly keep increasing their offer. First, they were saying a two-week ceasefire and, and free the prisoners. Now we're up to two months. And this is coming from the Israeli side. Yeah, they, yeah. There's they, Israelis don't have the ability to continue this war indefinitely, and the Palestinians are not going to surrender. This idea that that Sinwar is surrounded by captives is ridiculous. The idea that they're going to have any kind of negotiations happening um, that involve—I mean, I don't want to predict, but I, I think one of the things that I wouldn't uh, I, that I would be confident predicting is that Yahya Sinwar is not going to take exile uh, as no, part of this no deal. So um, these kind of talks uh, are ridiculous, and what you see is is Israel looking for a way out of a war that they're losing. And we've told you that for four months that they're going to lose this war and that they're fighting against uh, Palestinians who have dedicated their entire life to this liberation struggle. And if if they didn't and they weren't dedicating their life to it before, they definitely are now. Um, And this is no question that this is a national liberation struggle that nobody's going to surrender uh, it, it, no Palestinians wanting that. We're not even. We're not seeing anything like that. We're seeing uh, footage every single day of devastation of attacking civilians and those civilians supporting um, the resistance. You're not going to genocide your way uh, out of this national liberation struggle. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like. Leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you. That was a analysis uh, in regard to the resistance that is taking place in Gaza. Uh, from uh, the panel uh, provided uh, by Electronic Intifada, one of the primary sources on uh, the Palestinian uh, struggle. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 27th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal uh, for uh, this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that is uh, the legendary Detroit's own Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled No One to Blame. And uh, the Biden administration, uh, the President of the United States, uh, who occupies the White House, is being sued by uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, out of uh, uh, New York City. And uh, the plaintiffs consist of Palestinian uh, human rights organizations, uh, individuals who have been victimized uh, by the ongoing genocide uh, in Gaza, a genocide that is bankrolled and coordinated and supported and given diplomatic cover by uh, the United States government and the capitalist system uh, in the United States. Let's listen uh, to a discussion uh, that uh, took place just in the aftermath of yesterday's ruling uh, by the International Court of Justice, uh, which rule uh, that the uh, South African uh, claims of genocide against the Palestinian people were plausible. The uh, International uh, Court of Justice, the High Court of the United Nations, uh, issued a series of provisional measures uh, which uh, Israel uh, is supposed to adhere to. And uh, 30 days uh, from yesterday, uh, both parties, uh, the Republic of South Africa and the State of Israel, are to reappear uh, before the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Let's listen uh, to this discussion on uh, the lawsuit uh, surrounding uh, the Gaza genocide that has been filed in federal court uh, here in the United States.
Um, so we're going to go live. Everyone talk, you're going to stop. Yep. Getting on to Elena. Starting. Yes. Okay. Cool. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be here with you. My name is Tarek Smail. I teach at CUNY Law School in New York City, and I'm on the steering committee of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Welcome, everyone. My name is Elena Stein. I'm with Jewish Voice for Peace, and it's an honor to be with all of you today. Today, after 112 days of genocide, Palestinians will have their day in court in their lawsuit against President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Austin. In their own words, Palestinian plaintiffs will tell the truth of the Biden administration's failure to prevent genocide, the crime of crimes, and the U.S. government's complicity in Israel's genocide of the Palestinian people. This is a pre-hearing live stream where we'll hear from lawyers, advocates, and organizers about the importance of this momentous case. They're going to break down what this case is and why it's so significant. They're going to help us understand how to make this case useful for the movement, regardless of the outcome. We'll also hear about the very significant ruling that came down just this morning in South Africa's case against Israel in the International Court of Justice. There, the court ruled that there is indeed a plausible charge of genocide. They dismissed Israel's attempt to throw the case out, and they ordered Israel to take all measures within its power to prevent genocide in Gaza. While we know it fell short of calling for a full ceasefire, the court would not have ruled this way without a global movement that pushed them to recognize the genocide alleged. Part of what's significant today is that while South Africa brings Israel to the world court, we're also bringing the United States to court at the same time. Because this is not Israel's war against the Palestinian people alone, it is also the U.S.'s, and the U.S. must be held to account. We're appreciative of South Africa and its people for standing up to demand justice on the world stage, and we're also proud today of all of the tireless work of the Center for Constitutional Rights in bringing this case, Defense for Children International Palestine v. Biden against the United States. So here's what's going to happen. We are going to be hosting this pre-hearing live stream for the next hour and a half. And then at 9 p.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. East, which is 7 p.m. in Palestine, we're then all going to move to a different link to begin watching the hearing live from Oakland, California, where Palestinian families and community members will be present in person watching with many more rallying outside. But before we go to live to the hearing over the next hour and a half, we're going to hear from a historical movement legal experts talking about the significance of this case, helping us understand it, and breaking down how to understand what's gonna happen in that hearing so that everyone here can understand it. Meanwhile, today is an international day of action for a permanent ceasefire. 
So all around the country, communities are organizing today to amplify this case and to hold the Biden administration accountable for its complicity in the genocide of Palestinians. And so if you are watching right now, we invite you to take action where you are. Throughout this live stream, please check out the links in the YouTube bio to an action toolkit where you can get guidance on how to take action today. We're going to open this morning with an audio clip from Abdullah al-Haddad. Abdullah is a resident of Gaza City and is currently displaced to Rafah. He's a cousin of a plaintiff in the case that'll have its hearing today, Layla al-Haddad. And you're listening uh, to a panel discussion uh, hosted by the Center for Constitutional Rights on uh, the lawsuit uh, that has been filed uh, by the CCR on behalf of Palestinians uh, and uh, Palestinian Americans uh, who are facing genocide uh, inside of the Gaza Strip and other areas of the occupied uh, territories. And this is uh, being broadcast uh, over uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, on this that, uh, Saturday. An academic literal from Gaza City, unmarried and the father of two children. We used to live a peaceful life in our beautiful home with lots of love and hope. We worked hard to provide a better future for our children. Suddenly, we found ourselves living amidst constant explosions and pumping with a lot of fear. I had to flee with my family and kids several times after the Israeli army destroyed our home until we arrived to Rafahsky. Nothing can describe the fear that we live in with our kids for more than 100 days now, which always outweighed other sufferings we experience, such as hunger disease, lack of health care, and lack of suitable shelter in this cold weather. In the north of Gaza, our relatives eat animal feed and drink polluted water in the, in the midst of a real famine. While in the south of the Gaza Strip, children are dying from the cold in this weather inside tents. The United States government stands extremely biased toward the Israeli side and provide them with unlimited support while ignoring the suffering of the two million Palestinians, most of them are women and children. Therefore, we as a Palestinian from Gaza City and Gaza Strip hold the United States government the responsibility for the destruction of our lives. We hope to preserve what remains of our dreams for a peaceful life that's why this war must stop, not just for us, but for the future generations. And we so appreciate that message from, uh, from Abdullah, and we're uh, delighted to be able to introduce a panel first to discuss the historical context for this case. We have with us Atta Hindi, professor at Tulane Law School and counsel with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, Lara Borno, Palestinian American international lawyer, activist, and co-host of the Palestine Pod, 
and Jihad Abu Salim from Deir al-Barah in the Gaza Strip, writer and co-editor of Light in Gaza, Writings Born on Fire. We're honored to be with all of you today. Lara, we'd love to begin with you. Can you situate the significance of today's hearing in the experience of the Palestinians in Gaza over recent generations and what it means to now have Palestinians in court against the prime supporters of Israel? Yes, absolutely. So thank you for having me. Um, look, today is a historic day um, for a number of reasons. Um, we obviously just uh, are coming uh, from sort of digesting what we saw um, in the ICJ hearing, and now we're about to go into the hearing, um, which uh, is, is taking place in the United States, charging the Biden administration uh, with complicity um, in Israel's ongoing genocide. And, you know, I'm looking at this as a Palestinian, as a lawyer, as a Palestinian with roots in Gaza, and, you know, I have so many different hats that I wear. Um, back to the beginning a little bit, if I can situate us historically. I'm not here to speak about the law. Let the other panelists um, do that. Um, one of the things that I thought was most powerful um, about South Africa's oral argument was that they began with an acknowledgement of the Nexa. A few seconds into their oral argument, that was the, you know, the, the, the single point that came out um, of their intervention. We are here to recognize the Nexa and recognize what happened to Palestinians. And so I, I would just like us to think about that point for a moment here and understand that everything that is happening to Palestinians in Gaza today is not happening to a people who prior to October 7th were living with full freedom and rights on their land and had, you know, not a concern in this world. Our story is one that unfortunately um, leaves us in a position where for more than 75 years, we've never had our human rights respected for a single day. To know that the majority of Palestinians in Gaza are Nexa survivors or the descendants of Nexa survivors is something that I think is essential to our understanding of the significance of these efforts to hold Israel and the United States accountable. Um, not only are Palestinians in Gaza, the majority of them from Gaza, but the oppression didn't end with the Nexa. It followed uh, it was followed by, we know, 56 years of military occupation, 17 years of a brutal siege that caged Palestinians in Gaza, and now we see over 110 days of this unfolding genocide. So we're talking about generations of Palestinians who have lived deep, deep trauma that has never been allowed to heal. We have never been allowed to get to the point where the trauma has ceased and we can actually begin to heal and begin to grieve and begin to move forward with our lives. Instead, the trauma continues to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And therefore, we must all mobilize. And efforts like the lawsuit brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights, efforts like the lawsuit brought by South Africa, are some of the numerous efforts that are taking place in this moment to try to finally bring an end to this 75 years of impunity and lack of accountability that has allowed us to get to this point. And so this is a historic moment, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful 
that with the pressure that is now going to be applied by the ICJ's finding that the, the, the lawsuit in the United States against the Biden administration can also proceed um, in such a manner that eventually there will be a, a ruling on the merits holding the Biden administration accountable, finding that there is indeed complicity or at least failure to prevent genocide. Um, but I just, I hope that those, um, you know, initial comments of just remembering what people in Gaza have over 75 years and how deeply, deeply justice is needed in this moment more than ever um, uh, will at least situate us in understanding the importance um, of these various um, events. Thank you, thank you, Lara. Um, you know, I, I want to move to to uh, to Atta. Um, Atta, your work has taken you to Gaza, and you also supported an amicus brief in the case for Palestinian American families uh, trapped in Gaza. Can you share some of the reality they're facing um, and the neglect they're experiencing at the hands of the U.S. government? Yeah, thank thank you all for having me. And um, and uh, when I was last in working in Palestine, um, I had the opportunity to go to um, Gaza on several occasions, and um, it almost seemed like every single time I go to Gaza, the situation just just got worse and worse. Uh, the devil's one of my first visits and. The last period I was there um, was after the 2014 um, destruction, where you could still see um, the rubble pretty much everywhere. You still see um, rubble from previous, um, you know, a series of destructions that occurred uh, within the Gaza Strip. Um, just, just complete devastation in some areas, and you know, you. It's a constant pattern of destroying and rebuilding. Um, and and it, 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 it's hard to see, well, it was hard then to see any possibility of um, the Palestinian people in Gaza, in, in their ability to fully, or at least even, to be honest, remotely enjoy their rights, their right to self-determination. Um, I recall on my last visit even uh, meeting with um, probably one of the most uh, devastating trips that I had there was meeting with um, victims um, of the shootings, of the Israeli shootings on the Great March of Return, all individuals that were shot in their, um, in their backs and were completely paralyzed. Um, and one of them died shortly after um, um, my, my visit. Unfortunately, and um, you, you realize that again. It's just this, you know, again, this recurring process. And uh, I, I, I thought it couldn't get worse. Um, and and obviously, what we've seen over the past couple months is a clear indication that not only has it gotten worse, that respect for international law, generally speaking, um, has just completely lessened, and that there are exceptions to the rules or the rules-based international order as we'd like to see it. And none of this could be done without the United States government. It can't continue funding this war without the United States government. Um, 
and a lot of people, you know, were worried about enforcing this uh, decision today, which basically found a plausible case um, for genocide and saying, what about enforcing it and talking about going to the Security Council? To be honest, you don't even need to go to the Security Council because it's in the United States to to say whether or not, through its weapons in particular, whether or not this genocide continues. Um, I was happy to support this amicus brief for the American and Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, who's been, you know, we, like other organizations, have been drowning in complaints of um, discrimination against Palestinian Arab Muslim Americans within the United Nations. We can't, we're trying to keep up. We're getting there. Um, and we're, you know, building our, our, our resources further. You know, uh, the organization itself is doing an, an amazing job, um, like all the other organizations, Palestine Legal and others. And um, I, was able, I was happy to support the work of the ADC in putting together this amicus brief and talking to uh, Palestinian Americans from Gaza with families in Gaza throughout the United States. We're just, you know, reiterating these narratives, these ongoing narratives of death and destruction. Um, individuals who have lost families altogether or not in communication with their families and who are not able to, who go in these little spaces of time where the next message we get is a 50-50. Maybe they're alive, maybe they're not. And um, Thank you, Atta. Yeah, and uh, sorry, I'll just I'll just end with saying, and it's it's unfortunate uh, to see how little um, the U.S. government, in particular, has paid attention to these American citizens and their families. And we hope that the court will do something to change that. That's exactly right, and exactly why we're. So proud that this case is being brought today. Thank you so much for all of that. And now we're honored to hear from Jihad Abu Salim. Jihad, can you tell us how, or share with us how significant it is that to, to you and, and your families and loved ones that today a group of Palestinians will provide testimony in front of a U.S. court? As our understanding that this is the first time this is happening in an offensive posture broadcast live around the world in an effort to hold the U.S. legally accountable for its role in Israel's genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Thank you so much for uh, this question and for having me um, today. Uh, of course, today marks a significant moment, not just for me and my family, but for countless Palestinian families, especially those uh, from and in Gaza who have been, who have long been silenced by Israel and its allies. Um, and of course, this silence is not just a matter of being unheard. Uh, it represents decades of suppressed truths, unacknowledged suffering, and the denial of fundamental human rights, um, and assaults on the lives and dignity of millions of Palestinians, including those who live in the Gaza Strip. Um, what we are witnessing today in Gaza is not an isolated uh, incident. It is the culmination of decades of systemic violence and oppression that began 
before, during, and after the 1948 Nakba. Uh, the Nakba set in motion a series of aggressions and assaults that have continually eroded and uh, targeted the lives, freedom, and dignity of the Palestinian people. Um, and Gaza in particular has borne the brunt of this oppression through numerous massacres, blockades, and targeted schemes designed to undermine the very existence of Palestinians there, expel them, and, um, and assault their freedom and dignity, as I said. So whether it's the ICJ ruling today or the testimony in front of the U.S. court, which would be broadcasted uh, live, um, these are pivotal moments in our long struggle for justice. Uh, they represent an opportunity to bring light to the harsh realities that Palestinians have been enduring for generations. And the fact that, you know, this, this event aims to hold the United States accountable for its role in, um, in, uh, supporting Israel's assault on the Palestinian people, especially what we're witnessing in Gaza is definitely a crucial step towards justice. And, um, I hope, I personally hope, um, that it is a wake up call to the international community that the status quo in Gaza is not only unsustainable, but has been so for decades and a fundamental change uh, in approach and understanding and framing um, are definitely needed. Uh, our families in Gaza live under the constant threat of death, injury, and the destruction of homes and property. The psychological and physical toll of this perpetual state of uncertainty and danger is immeasurable. Therefore, any effort that seeks to bring attention to our plight, to push for accountability, and to end this cycle of, uh, of violence is not just welcome, but necessary. Um, I hope, and on behalf of my family and everybody I love and I care about, that today's um, hearing will ignite a broader conversation about Palestinian rights and the Palestinian struggle for justice and liberation, and the urgent need for um, uh, ending the killing in Gaza. This, uh, this is about recognizing and affirming the humanity of every Palestinian who has suffered under these terrible conditions that we've been seeing. And um, let us remember today that behind the statistics and the headlines, uh, there are real people with real stories of loss, of resilience, and, um, and, a, a, and an unyielding hope and struggle for a better future. So once again, thank you so much for having me, and uh, hopefully this is just another step to, in, a, in a long journey towards justice and liberation. Thank you. Mm, amen. Thank you so much, Jihad. Yes, an unyielding struggle, and all the love to you and to your family and to all of the people of Gaza. We are now going to go into the legal case. What is the legal case that is being brought today to the Biden administration? We're going to break down what are the basics of this case and why is it so significant. To start us off, we're going to hear from Nura Etikat, human rights attorney and associate professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University. So Nura, can you help us understand what are the basics of this case? And why is it so significant? 
so this case is pretty historic because it is charging, charging the Biden administration, and in particular, President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, and uh, Secretary of Defense Austin with a failure to uphold their obligations under the Genocide Convention. The Genocide Convention, you know, legislated in 1948 in the aftermath of genocide within Europe's shores is not um, ratified by the United States until 1988, specifically because its terms raise the specter of culpability of U.S. genocide, not only of Native Americans, for which they've never taken responsibility, but also against African Americans, as enshrined in the 1951 uh, petition to the United Nations We Charge Genocide that was filed by the Civil Rights Congress at the time. The U.S which oversaw a structure of racism for which, you know, the end of which, as articulated by Martin Luther King Jr., if you do not think that I have the right to sit at any counter that I want to be served, to to move around freely, then what right do I have to life, right? That there's a, there's a continuum between the structure of racism and, uh, and the structure of annihilation that, you know, manifests in the genocide charge. All that to be said, this would be the first time that the U.S. is going to face this charge that it is failing to prevent genocide, not only complicity in genocide, and more historically so because it's brought by Palestinians. And we should remember that this particular Israeli genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza is not only an Israeli war, but is a U.S. war as indicated by the provision of intelligence, support, diplomatic cover, as we've seen in uh, the two Security Council vetoes that have impeded uh, ceasefire. And so this is quite significant. It's not charging the administration, however, with genocide. It's just saying, saying that as a party to this convention, the duty is to prevent it when we know that it's seen. And there have been enough warnings. Now, by 800 genocide and law scholars, 22 UN special rapporteurs, 15 UN working groups, the former director of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, as enumerated and, and laid out by the South African application to the International Court of Justice. We do not have to wait for genocide to be complete to know that there is enough to tell us that we should do what's necessary in order to prevent it. And so this is what we're seeing uh, take place at the court um, in the case brought by the uh, Center for Constitutional Rights. Nuda, we're going to hear the government attorneys argue about the political question doctrine um, over and over. It appears all over their briefs. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about what the political question doctrine is and how it's used um, by, by the government in cases like this one and, and other? Absolutely. So the political question doctrine is what emerges in a Supreme Court case in Baker versus Carr, where the, the judiciary has to evaluate, um, you know, something that, that the executive branch was doing. And here in order, you know, in, in, in deference to the separation of powers within the United States, and really because the judiciary doesn't want to get involved um, in, in cases that it believes is better suited for other branches of government, be it the executive branch, which has, you know, the power over foreign policy or the legislative branch, which has the power to create law. The judiciary says, look, there might be something that we can say in this case, but we think that it's better reserved. 
for another branch of government rather than for us to wade into it, right? And so the political question doctrine has been used by um, by the court, by federal courts, um, in multiple instances, um, including in instances in cases that we brought, uh, that I brought together with the Center for Constitutional Rights against uh, alleged Israeli war criminals, Avi Dichter and Moshe Anon, in 2006 for their role in the demolition of 5,000 homes in the south of Gaza and Rafah in 2005, as well as for the bombing of a United Nations compound in the south of Lebanon and Fana, um, and, and so in 1996. And so the, we see the political question doctrine reigns in that case where the Supreme Court never even gets to the merits of the case and says, we're not the suitable branch of government to decide on the legality here. A couple of things about this point. Number one, there is precedent in the United States to adjudicate a case of genocide, which we know is just disabled because of the way that the law is broken down. And so we have precedent if the court wants to go there. Number two, in my own query about how the political question doctrine is used in the United States, I found and published, I think it was a 2008 case, that in fact, Political question doctrine did not impede similarly politically contentious cases uh, that implicated China or the Philippines or Papua New Guinea um, or uh, Paraguay or other other um, cases where we had similarly political contentious issues. But I did find, right, systematic bias of the use of political question when the petitioner was Arab, Lebanese, um, as well as Palestinians, and the accused was Israeli. And so we should be mindful that this is not merely going to be a case that looks at precedent and analogy, you know, and, and just on a legal basis, but that politics will also shape these cases. The judges themselves are concerned with their future, right? Which party are they appealing to? Will they be um, tapped to join the Supreme Court, yes or no? What are their concerns? That this is not just going to be looking at the law and telling us what it is. And so we should be prepared for that particular outcome, but also not deterred by that outcome because there is precedent for it. And yet people power has continued to reshape the law and tell us what is and is not morally just. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tanura, for sharing uh, thoughts on the legal and political context and their and how they combine here. Um, for more discussion on the question of the the legal context, we're going to turn to uh, two two experts, Daryl Lee and Rabia Asbaria. Uh, Daryl Lee is an anthropologist and lawyer teaching at the University of Chicago, and Rabia Asbaria is a JD candidate at Harvard University. Um, welcome both. Rabia, uh, I'm going to turn to you first um, for your immediate reaction um, to the ICJ ruling that just came down a few hours ago. Um, can you tell us uh, what they ruled and how that uh, decision is going to impact the case um, that we will be witnessing today? Thank you, Sara. So we're just all processing, as Lara said, the ICJ um, decision. I think there is a lot of um, 
conflicting views on this matter and how to interpret the ICJ decision. Because um, essentially the ICJ acknowledged that there is a plausible case for genocide in Gaza, but it, uh, it fell short from calling for a ceasefire. And this is already problematic, but, and there will be though a fight over what the provisional measures it ordered actually meet. Because the, the ICJ um, did order some provisional measures, not all. It ordered that Israel has the obligation to stop all actions um, that fall under the Genocide Convention. Now, the problem with this type of language is that it um, relegates to Israel uh, or delegates to Israel the interpretation of what it, how to implement this actual uh, decision. And this is to be expected, to be honest, from an international body like the ICJ. I want to remind us all that, you know, the movement that calls for a ceasefire uh, does not derive its authority or moral authority from the International Court of Justice. It's a claim that is formulated, and the law is a power. It's 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 a um, medium to articulate certain claims, um, but it's ultimately enveloped in narratives that assign its meaning. And the movement, the global movement, that for months now has pushed um, world governments and and uh, uh, protested and you know um, occupied the streets, demanding a ceasefire, is what made this court order plausible to begin with. Um, so I just want to reiterate, you know, in terms of what the meaning of the ICJ hearing is yet to be seen on the broader level. It is for many Palestinians a disappointment so far. I've been, you know, trying to follow with what uh, uh, the Palestinian reaction um, also to this to this um, court hearing, the material manifestations of this uh, decision will not be seen tomorrow in Gaza. Um, but but still, it is important to note that the, the ICJ simply affirmed today what we all know, that there is um, that the case for genocide in Gaza is more than just plausible, um, that the case for genocide is in fact, um, um, you know, it, it basically the ICJ put the word government again. You know, it's not the first time. We should not be deriving all authority from this institution. But the, the ICJ put the word government on notice yet again. Um, now, in terms of, you know, the limit of this uh, court uh, decision, I think it's reflective of the international legal system itself and the distribution of power it carries. Now, I, I just want to note that for us as Palestinians, and I want to echo Jihad, um, words, the genocide in Gaza is rooted in the process of the ongoing Nakba. Um, and we should all be, you know, remembering this as we go to court and as we continue our struggle and as we call for a ceasefire now. Thank you so much, Rabia, for all of that. So appreciate these early interpretations of this, uh, the, the ICJ ruling that just came down this morning. And the reminder that it's a result of the people around the world, Palestinian people resisting and people around the world resisting in meaningful solidarity. And Daryl, we'd love to go down to you. Um, in just about an hour, we're all going to be watching the hearing live. And for those of us who are not legal experts and who are not used to watching such a hearing, we'd love for you to help us understand what we will be watching and help us interpret it. What can we expect? What is the hearing about? And how is it likely to go? What are things we should be listening for? And how can we understand them ahead of time? 
Hello, everyone. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm really honored to be in conversation and in community with all of you today. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, it's not entirely, I don't know exactly what to say about what to expect today because the nature of this hearing is actually uh, quite unusual, um, maybe even unprecedented in some ways. So what the judge said in his order was that uh, there would be two parts. Uh, the first part, he allotted 45 minutes for a set of arguments around some doctrinal legal matters. He spelled out some questions that he wants some lawyers to speak to. And that is where you're likely to hear a lot of the stuff that, uh, that Nura really eloquently unpacked, right? Stuff about um, the political question doctrine, uh, what is the nature of you know, customary international law, so on and so forth. And again, just to reinforce what Nura said, the persistent message really from the government side is a demand not to actually get into the issues at stake in this case, right? A demand to not have a conversation, to not have a reckoning with the reality of genocide being perpetrated on the ground in Palestine. In Palestine. Um, so essentially the political question doctrine is a very elaborate form of, in my opinion, sort of legal hand-waving, right? That is a refusal of conversation, a refusal of inquiry, a refusal of thinking and a refusal of reckoning. The second part of uh, the format for today is the part that's actually unusual. The judge has allotted two hours for witnesses from the plaintiff's side to provide live testimony in the courtroom, or, or, or rather, uh, uh, live streamed testimony. Um, and the reason why that's unusual is because in cases like this, what we have here is uh, this is not a hearing on the final merits of the case. It's a hearing on a preliminary injunction. Right. So it's an ask from plaintiffs that says, hey, look, um, we know you can't resolve this case very quickly. But in the meantime, there is so much at stake. There is so much risk of irreparable harm. And we have a substantial likelihood of success at the end of the case that you should issue a kind of emergency order in the here and now to at least preserve the status quo as much as possible. Now, normally, when you have a hearing to argue on these types of issues, it's your kind of standard technical, it's the first part of the hearing, right? It's lawyers getting up, talking about technical language issues. You rarely get into the facts and the human reality because the, the attitude of the courts is, you know, we're just going to save that for later. So for the judge to open the door to that now, to allow people on the record in a federal courtroom to articulate their lived reality, their harms, their fears, their experiences in a way that the government is forced to respond to at this early stage of litigation, that is what is unusual um, and potentially historic about the events of today. And I think, as to, to echo what Arvia said, all of this is made possible by people power, by the demands of those in the streets, in the streets from Gaza to capitals and cities and small towns all around the world. And that energy that, that popular mobilization and popular resistance creates shapes the conditions of possibility for struggle on the legal terrain as well. Thank you so much, Daryl. So appreciate all of that. Thank you for making this uh, legible to a non-legal crowd who want to walk, follow the hearing today and understand it, um, and for lifting up the historic nature of this case that uh, Palestinians will be giving live testimony and bringing an offensive case against the U.S. government. And, and thank the, you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Elena. Just reiterating thanks to both Rabia and, and Daryl, to the to the thousand plus 
uh, watching on YouTube, just want to remind folks that this is a, a pre-hearing briefing where we're discussing the case DCI Palestine uh, versus uh, Biden, a case suing the Biden administration um, for their uh, failure to prevent and complicity in genocide um, in, in Gaza, a point that I think Rabia wanted to raise, but for time, was that the ICJ ruling, in fact, underlines um, uh, the Biden administration's complicity in uh, that genocide and their duty uh, to prevent that genocide. And so I'm sure that's a tool that the lawyers will be bringing in um, to the argument today as, as, they, as they make their arguments in those 45 minutes that Daryl told us about. Um, Okay, uh, to you, Elena. In a moment, we're going to get into some of the political context behind today's case as we lead up to the hearing in an hour. But now we're going to be blessed by the poetry of Muhammad al-Kurd and the music of Clarissa Bittar. This is Why We Dance. This is why we dance. My father told me anger is a luxury that we cannot afford. Be composed, calm, still. Laugh when they ask you, smile when they talk, answer them, educate them. This is why we dance, because if I speak, I'm dangerous. You open your mouth, you raise your eyebrows, you point your fingers. This is why we dance. Wounded feet, but the rhythm remains. This is why we dance, because no matter how many adjectives you stack upon my shoulders, I define me. Now this is why we dance, because even my poetry isn't free. Now can you please just tell me, why is anger, even anger, a luxury to me? Why is anger even a luxury to me? from Hamad al-Kurd with music by Clarissa Bittar. Um, we are going to move on to a discussion of the political context next. Um, we will first be speaking with uh, Josh Paul, a former director at the U.S. State Department. Thank you, uh, Josh, for, for joining us. Um, my first question to you, uh, we uh, we hear almost inconceivable amounts of money being discussed when it comes to U.S. military support to Israel. The numbers are hard to even fathom. $3.8 billion every year, $14 billion in new funding um, since October 7th. Um, we don't want to dwell too much on the numbers except to uh, take note of their gargantuan nature. Um, can you give us a sense for the approximate um, estimate, can you contextualize what that means in terms of the types of military equipment that the U.S. is likely to have already provided uh, to Israel, either directly or indirectly, since uh, since the 7th of October? Yeah, thank you, and good morning on an important day for justice. Uh, I think understanding the U.S. arms transfer relationship with Israel is important, uh, as it underpins both Israel's broader approach to the Palestinians as well as what it has been doing, particularly uh, in Gaza, for almost the past four months. U.S. funding subsidizes not only Israel's defense procurement from the U.S., uh, but subsidizes Israel's defense industry as well. Uh, as my declaration in support of the case today describes, 
in the past decade alone, U.S. arms transfers to Israel have included scores of individual cases for everything from fighter jets to firearms, generators, precision-guided munitions, dumb bombs, helicopters, missiles, ammunition, armored vehicles, mobile guard towers, fuel, and I could go on uh, for a long time. Uh, since October 7th, we've seen a sharp increase in the transfer of arms to Israel, both through the speeding up of previously authorized transfers of precision-guided munitions uh, and through the ramming through Congress of so-called emergency sales uh, of thousands of rounds of tank ammunition and artillery shells. We also know that Israel has been drawing heavily on the pre-positioned stockpile the U.S. maintains in Israel, though the numbers there are much less transparent and harder to come by. The bottom line is that the U.S. has likely transferred munitions totaling in the tens of thousands uh, since October 7th to Israel, ranging from air-to-ground bombs and munitions to spare parts. Uh, in doing so, I believe we have likely transferred, uh, likely, sorry, set aside many of the relevant statutes and policies that typically govern arms transfers, particularly in terms of requirements that are intended to prevent U.S. arms from being used to cause human rights violations. Uh, this also demonstrates, I think, the significant amount of leverage that we have if we wanted to push Israel to end or curtail its operations in Gaza. Thank you. Josh Paul, you're a former director at the U.S. State Department, and I think people who are taking relentless action right now really want to understand what's going on behind the facade at the State Department. So we're wondering things like, to what extent is the widespread vocal concern expressed by the majority of Americans right now, and of course across the world, a concern also shared by rank-and-file State Department officials? You know, are there genuine concerns among people within not just the lower levels, but also the upper levels of the State Department? And what kinds of efforts, as someone who's, who's been in the State Department as a former director, what kind of efforts by concerned citizens do you think catch the attention of State Department decision makers? And especially today, do you imagine they are watching? Are they having their eye on legal accountability efforts like today's case against Biden, Blinken, and Austin. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with that last part, which is, yes, these sorts of cases do matter, both the case that the CCR is pursuing in the U.S. District Court in California and the ICJ case. Uh, you know, during the uh, Saudi-led coalition bombing of Yemen, uh, in which concerns were raised that cases could be brought to the International Criminal Court, uh, there were actually U.S. officials who declined to sign on arms transfers, uh, recognizing that they could be complicit in war crimes. Uh, and I understand that the same is happening right now. There are many officials who would normally be a part of policy decisions who have recused themselves from those policy decisions. I think that's important. Uh, and I think that debate does go up to the senior levels. You know, uh, even as I say that, I understand that the U.S. is in the process of considering further major arms sales of precision-guided munitions to Israel. Uh, but that it, uh, there are people raising concerns about those cases, asking questions, uh, both of Israel and of the Defense Department, uh, that may, you know, drive further discussions. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that that dissent, that those discussions will lead to any changes, which is particularly disappointing on the legal side, again, where I believe there are binding laws uh, that are not being properly applied and they're not being followed. Uh, but I think it is significant, and I think there is a, a wide amount of disagreement uh, with the track the administration is on, uh, both on a moral basis, a legal basis, and a policy basis. Appreciate all of that. And I just want to follow up on one piece you said, which is 
that it, in this case, that it's impossible for Israel to have conducted its military operations without a vast amount of U.S. weaponry. I just want to underscore that and, and ask you, is that right? Yes. I mean, that's, that's obviously the case in terms of Israel's total weapons load. When you look at, uh, you know, the majority of their stockpile, particularly of precision-guided weapons, of, you know, air-to-ground munitions, uh, of artillery shells coming from the U.S., it's also the case, very briefly, when you look at the emergency sales the Biden administration conducted in the last couple of months, uh, I don't believe that's because Israel was running out of artillery shells. Uh, rather, it was running out of, or it's running towards the strategic reserve that it holds for contingencies such as a Hezbollah conflict. Uh, so what the U.S. essentially is doing by rushing these arms is saying to Israel, you don't have to make hard choices. You don't have to decide where your actual threat is. You can keep going at the pace you are going in Gaza and have enough stops to deal with any other contingency. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Josh Paul. Um, you know, really important framing that here the American government is preventing the Israeli government from making hard choices. They are making every choice easy. They are making every genocidal choice yeah. a quick and easy one to make. Thank you for underlining that and for your submission to the, to the court uh, in a declaration uh, on, on those same terms. Um, we're going to turn now to, uh, to Beth Miller, the political director at Jewish Voice uh, for Peace Action. Um, hi, Beth. Um, over the last three months, we've seen unprecedented levels of mass protests aimed at pushing Congress to uh, shift positions and demand an end to Israel's bombardment of Palestinians. Um, given all of the work that you do on Capitol Hill, we'd love your insight. Um, do these protests have an impact? Um, and what are the ways that you've seen Congress move or refuse to move, uh, move around speaking out um, on a ceasefire right now? Thanks so much, uh, Tarek. And it's such an honor to be part of um, the group of people who are speaking today. Um, the short answer is yes. Protests, mass mobilizations, any way that we can be making our voices and our demands heard does have an impact on Congress. It's also true that it can be very hard to see that impact and that that impact has not yet become material. It has not yet become a big enough impact that Congress has, for example, demanded an end to the weapons that we are sending to the Israeli government. And I think that for those of us who are organizers, who are activists, who are part of the movement for Palestinian liberation being led by Palestinians, it's important for us to be able to hold both of those things at the same time. That on the one hand, every single thing that we are doing matters and it is widening the cracks in what used to be unwavering, unquestioning support for the Israeli government and that our tactics work. And at the same time, it's also true that the U.S.'s complicity is continuing and moving forward and that the changes are not happening nearly fast enough to meet the overwhelming, nightmarish urgency of the moment. 
And it can be hard to hold both of those things at the same time. But when, when this started, when this genocide started, we were at only a small handful of members of Congress who were willing to even entertain the possibility of demanding a ceasefire. That speaks to how far gone the U.S. government is when it comes to its complicity. Now we are at over 65 members of Congress who are demanding a ceasefire. And we also have members of Congress who are pushing for uh, restrictions, conditions, um, and cutting of the weapons that we are sending to the Israeli government. And so, again, it's, when I say that, on the one hand, it's pathetic, right? 65 members of Congress calling for a ceasefire, that's nothing. And on the other hand, it's also true that every single one of those members who has moved has moved because of grassroots pressure from their constituents demanding it and showing up at their offices every single day, flooding their phone lines, making it impossible for them to make any other decision. And I think that the biggest thing, the, the thing I'll end on is that it's good for us to remember that for the overwhelming majority of members of Congress, this is not true for all of them, but for most of them, they are making decisions based on a political calculus. They are not making decisions based on what they believe to be right or wrong. That is a problem, and it's also true. But what that means, then, is that we have power over their political calculus. And if we can shift it by making it clear that they will not get a moment's peace or rest until they change their positions, we can be louder and stronger and push toward that. And so um, there is an impact, and the cracks are really starting to show. Thank you so much for that context, Beth. I think it's really helpful for people who are, you know, following the actions like the ones that are at the bottom of this YouTube uh, video, um, calling Congress, sending letters to know exactly how um, those actions are, are manifesting. And, and it's incredibly frustrating to, to folks to know that it's only 66 members of Congress as compared to um, the the vast majority of the Democratic Party, for example, who believe Israel is committing a genocide, which we learned just yesterday. Um, we're going to move to the to our, our next question for you, uh, Beth. Um, can you tell us how this moment right now, uh, in, in your view, fits into the longer-term struggle that the Palestinian rights movement in the U.S. has been pushing for decades, which is uh, to end U.S. government complicity in uh, Israeli apartheid. Yeah, absolutely. So right now we're in a position where there is a top-line demand, which is also one of the most basic baseline humanitarian demands that we could be making. These protests taking over the Cannon House Rotunda, shutting down bridges, shutting down weapons manufacturers, all of these protests are calling for a ceasefire. That is the most basic humanitarian thing that we could be demanding right now. And it's important that we be clear that that is not the be-all, end-all of what the movement's calling for, right? The Palestinian Liberation Movement in the U.S., it's calling for an overall end to U.S. complicity in Israel's ongoing apartheid, Israel's ethnic cleansing, Israel's occupation, et cetera. And that includes an end to all U.S. military funding to Israel. And the ways, though, that this fits in right now is that the what we're seeing right now is an exposure of the extent 
extent to which the United States is complicit. And like Nora said before, that this is also the United States war. And that is shifting the opinions of constituents and of voters who did not realize that before. They did not understand the full extent to which the Biden administration, Congress, and other U.S. agencies are fully backing Israel's oppression of Palestinians. And so we're seeing the ways that this is shifting how voters and constituents think about sending weapons to the Israeli government, who they are sympathizing with as they look around and see what's happening and what kind of changes they want to see. And it's now on the movement to take the fact that all of these new people are coming in as part of the struggle for an immediate ceasefire. And it's now on us to take them, educate them about the broader situation and keep them with us as we now push for what comes next, which is an end to military funding to the Israeli government, a shift in the U.S. government's positions overall and these larger demands. But we're coming back with more people, with more power, with more mass mobilization behind us. And that is how these things that are just small cracks right now become a shattering of U.S. complicity overall in the future. Thank you so much, Beth, for everything you do and for, for sharing. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure to hear from you. Again, um, just to remind folks, um, we are here in a pre-hearing briefing um, for the, the case that will be heard in the Northern District of California um, at uh, 12 a.m. Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific Time, and 7 p.m. in Palestine. We'll share the link for you all to jump over to that hearing at the end of this um, at the end of this briefing. A reminder that that again that that case. Um, uh, DCI Palestine v. Biden is a case suing the Biden administration, the secretaries of defense, state, and the president himself for complicity and failure to prevent genocide um, in, in Gaza. Um, that case will build upon um, the decision we heard uh, from the ICJ um, this morning. Um, Reminder, too, that there are links um, at the bottom of uh, the at the bottom of this YouTube page um, that you can use to take action in this moment. And we encourage you all to do that. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Elena. Great. So we're now uh, very excited to go live to outside the courthouse, outside the courthouse in Oakland right now. Uh, we're going to hear from Kimmy with Bay Resistance and the Oakland organizing team. Um, first of all, Kimmy, congratulations to Bay Resistance and to other Bay organizers for all of the amazing organizing that you've been doing. And, of course, the recent victory uh, to get the San Francisco City Supervisors ceasefire resolution passed and then defended against mayoral veto. Yes. So, Take us to outside the courthouse right now. What's happening outside the court today? What is the energy? And for those who are not in the Bay and who are following, how can people follow the uh, follow the activities online today? Yeah, so I am out here in Oakland right now. You can see behind me, this is the actual courthouse with the line that's happening. Uh, folks have been lining up since 8 o'clock to try to get in. The seats, there's only about 80 seats inside, so um, we have an overflow space for folks, but folks are excited to be here. 
I'm going to just zoom around. You can see there's folks gathering. Uh, folks are offering free coffee and bagels to people. Um, there are community groups out here later that will be taking um, some art actions out here. So we'll have um, support. So when the plaintiffs come out, we're ready to greet them. Um, we're going to have a rally with more people. But you can just see there's a lot of folks gathering right now. And they've been since the last couple of hours. Oh, and then if you want to follow us, sorry, <laughs> you asked about how to connect. So you can look, um, Gay Resistance will be posting, as well as AROC. You can look at our Instagram, you can look at our Facebook, like all the different social media will be posting, letting people know what's going on. There's probably also going to be some different live streams you'll see from Oakland. Um, a lot of supporters out here, and a lot of folks like to go online, so you'll see a lot of uh, different places to get information. Awesome. Thank you, Kimmy. Thank you to all the Bay organizers. It's really energizing to see you all out there. And um, it's a reminder of just how historic today is, um, that while the ICJ ruling is happening, we are also taking the U.S. to court in Defense for International Palestine v. Biden, um, where the Center for Constitutional Rights is suing Biden, Blinken, and Austin for failure to prevent genocide and complicity in genocide and it's a historic day for a number of reasons, including the fact that this is the first time we believe in U.S. history when a Palestinian person will be taking the stand in a U.S. Court, courtroom, uh, not in defense, but in an offensive posture. And we're going to be hearing live testimony from seven Palestinians actively making the case for Palestinian rights. Thank you to all the organizers on the ground uh, for bringing us with you. Back to you, Tadek. Great. Yes. Thank you so much, Kimmy, for bringing us into that moment outside outside the courthouse. It, it's, it looks like a lively place uh, to be, and we're excited to, to hear how things go. Um, we're uh, going to hear again from uh, Abdullah al-Haddad. Um, as we uh, described before, a uh, uh, Gaza resident um, who has been displaced um, like so many millions of Palestinians in Gaza um, to to the south, to Rafah. Um, he's a family member of a plaintiff. Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion uh, on uh, the case uh, being brought uh, against uh, the Biden administration White House uh, by uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights on behalf of uh, Palestinians. Uh, alleging, claiming uh, that the Biden administration is complicit uh, in uh, the crime of genocide against uh, the Palestinian people. That is going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach uh, the Pan-African Radio Network uh, at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website uh, at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. Uh, 
We'll close out uh, with the music of uh, John Coltrane uh, live in Japan uh, with the track entitled Afro Blue. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.